Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi, everyone. I can't believe it's been 14 episodes since we visited Raymond's realm. Oh, yeah. New York State of Mind. And if you haven't checked out that episode, the link is in the show notes. You should also check out our episode about the Maffeos and their criminal histories. It will give more context to today's episode. Family feud at its finest. Before we get into today's story, we've got a couple of things. First, Nina's FOIA request for Buddy McLean's FBI file has been denied because the records, guess what, have supposedly been destroyed. It is so frustrating. I'm looking for a little divine intervention like we had in our, our Howie Winter request. I still like to think that one of our listeners helped us, but we still don't have anything in our hands, just a potential records response. Well, I have some hope anyway. Speaking of hope, I'm still waiting on dad's recordings. The company out in Colorado who is digitizing them had a hardware issue. It looks like another week. Oh man, it seems like it's taking forever. Tell me about it. Okay, our other item isn't completely unrelated to today's episode. Not at all. We didn't plan this, but coincidentally, this week is Louis Minocchio's 95th birthday. Well, happy birthday, Louis. Well, I doubt Louis is listening to us. <laughs> hey, you never know. Maybe Louis is waiting to hear what we have to say about his activities in the 1960s. What do you mean besides sitting in the car with your dad and pro outside of the rib room in Braintree? <laughs> the visual of that story always makes me laugh, but we have to wait for the season finale to tell that one. I know you're itching to get into the whole baby shanks, baby shacks thing, but let's wait until a little later, please. Oh, man, you suck. Hey, be nice. We'll get to it. Besides Louis and his nickname, the murder of Willie Maffeo on July 13th, 1966, will be our primary focus today. The latter murder of Willie's brother, Rudy, in 1968 would be the catalyst for the undoing of Jack Kelly's reign as a criminal mastermind and will feature prominently in the end of season one and the beginning of season two of this podcast. Raymond's desire to kill Willie supposedly for running an unsanctioned dice game and illegal gambling operation on Federal Hill in Providence was the reason given by the feds for Willie's murder. According to transcripts from the wiretap at the Coinomatic and statements from other informants, Raymond had wanted Willie dead since at least the summer of 1964, but Henry Tamilio's tax problems forced Raymond to put Willie on the back burner. I also want to say again for the hundredth time, Raymond Patriarca did not have a local hitter. Calm down. Let's talk about Henry's tax case and the surrounding events of the summer of 1965. On June 25, 1965, Tamilio surrendered to federal authorities. He was charged with conspiring to violate federal gambling tax laws. At the arraignment hearing later that same day, Tamilio pleaded innocent to the eight-count indictment. Andrew and Louis Minocchio, Angelo De Palma, Rudy Schiara, and eight other men had already been arrested on similar charges and held on $1,000 bail each. When De Palma was arrested at the Narragansett Park, where he worked, the cops had found $6,567 in cash on him. It was at about this time that the wiretap at Raymond's picked up Louis Taglianetti discussing a hit with Raymond. Special Agent Keogh reported in his memo to Hoover that although he wasn't sure who Taglianetti wanted to murder, he assumed it was Willie Maffeo given the context. 
Keogh's note on the subject concluded, quote, this group has been attempting to kill Maffeo for over one year, but has not been successful as yet, unquote. No recommendation was given by Keogh about what the feds intended to do about it either. When did they ever do anything about it? How many times did they hear that someone was going to be killed and they didn't lift a finger? Too many times. Exactly. And speaking of murders that might have been preventable, let's talk about the Jackie Nazarian hit. Well, Jackie Nazarian had been dead for almost three years at that point. Rudy Schiara was the main suspect. Schiara was accused, arrested, or indicted for nearly every murder that took place in Rhode Island throughout the 1960s and beyond. The feds hounded him up until the time he died. We need to back up a bit here, though, because it's been 20 episodes since we talked about Jackie Nazarian's murder, and it gets very confusing very quickly. Half the time, I can't even keep it straight in my head. (laughs) The Maffeos were related to Jackie Nazarian by marriage. Jackie's wife, Sarah, was the daughter of Gaetano Baccari and Angelina Baroni. Two of her sisters were married to Maffeos, her younger sister, Angelina, to Savino Maffeo, and her older sister, Rosie, to Joe Maffeo. Joe Buffy Bakari and Rudy Maffeo were also brothers-in-law through their wives, the Curia sisters. During the Nazarian murder trial, a witness claimed that Willie Maffeo had been at the scene when Rudy Schiara killed Jackie. According to Anthony Ricci Jr., Willie had tried to pull the two men apart but failed in his efforts, and that's when Jackie got shot. After the Skiara case ended, Willie was charged with Jackie's murder, but the government couldn't get an indictment. We should also review the March 1965 murder of Joe Barbieri, at least briefly, since he was also related by marriage to the Maffeos. Barbieri was allegedly involved in a hot car ring that Raymond's brother, Joe Patriaca, was also a member of. Ten days before he was killed, Barbieri had pleaded innocent to an auto larceny charge and had been released on bail. Jerry Wimette would eventually be charged with Barbiera's murder in 1981. If you want more details, check out episode 33, The Hit Parade of 65. Also during the summer of 1965, there were other efforts supposedly made to secure a hitman to take out Willie. Raymond had to look outside of New England for a hitter, which leads me to one of my favorite hitter theories, Gregory the Grim Reaper Scarpa. If you listen to New York State of Mind, you might remember that Raymond had contacted Scarpa. Scarpa was a made member of the Profanci family, which would later become the Colombo family. Greg Scarpa was also not Sicilian. (laughs) So much for the theory that you had to be Sicilian to be made. His father was from Campania and his mother was from Bari. In fact, the Scarpa family were from the same town as the New York's Cuomo family. Wasn't Scarpa's mom from the same part of Bari that Raymond's family was from? I think so. We'll have to see if there's some connection back there between the Patriarchs and Scarpas. I'm betting there was. Highly probable. Scarpa officially became an informant on November 21st, 1961. An FBI 302 dated July 25th, 1965. Informant number NY3461CTE, Gregory Scarpa, reported that he was contacted, presumably by Nikki Bianco, to go to Providence at Raymond's request. Scarpa told his FBI handler that he knew Raymond personally and was familiar with how he operated. The odd request was that Scarpa demanded that his handler accompany him on his trip to Providence where he would likely spend a week. He wanted to be ensured that his handler was nearby at all times. 
About a week later, Scarpa contacted his handler and reported that he'd received another phone call from Nikki Bianco. Nikki told Scarpa that they were still waiting to get the okay from Raymond about Scarpa's trip to Providence. Nikki also indicated that they'd found another way to take care of Willie Maffeo since Willie was not important. Scarpa reiterated that he would not make any move without Raymond's express approval. Nikki reassured Scarpa that Raymond would understand his sentiments and stated that Scarpa should wait to hear from Raymond. A few more days passed and Nikki phoned again. He claimed that Raymond was in Saratoga and would be gone for a few weeks, but the Patriarca would contact Scarpa when he returned home to Rhode Island. Nikki repeated that they'd found another way to take care of Willie, but that they might have something else for Scarpa to do. But it wasn't his skill with a gun that they needed. Rather, they were hoping to use him to smoke out the informant in Raymond's midst. Little did any of them know, Raymond and Jerry and Julo were informing on themselves. (laughs) (laughs) FBI Special Agent Charles Rapucci asked around, but according to his sources, Raymond hadn't changed his routine at all and was certainly not in Saratoga. In fact, it would only be another month before his wife Helen would pass away from the cancer that had slowly been killing her for years. Say what you want to say about Raymond, but he took care of his wife and visited her almost every day when she was in the hospital. Back to Willie. At about the same time his brother-in-law, John Barbieri, was murdered, Willie Maffei was once again charged with illegal gambling activities and released on $500 bail. Let's fast forward to 1966. On April 6th, Angelo De Palma, who pleaded guilty in or no contest in November of 1965, was sentenced to six months probation. Louis the Fox Talianetti's tax trial began on April 21st. Just a few days later, Louis Minacchio and a couple of the other men who had been arrested the previous June changed their pleas from innocent to guilty on the charge of violating the federal gambling tax. Sentencing was scheduled for the following month. Rudy Schiara also pleaded guilty to the same charge, although he'd only been named as a co-conspirator and not a defendant. On April 26th, Raymond was subpoenaed over Talianetti's tax issues. He was asked to produce the payroll records of the National Cigarette Services, Inc. Louis was on the books as a salesman, and Raymond claimed that Louis drummed up a third of their cigarette vending machine business. The trial would drag on throughout the summer. In September, Louis was sentenced to seven months and fined $3,000. And Louis' trial would bring the wiretap at the Coino into the public eye. In December, the FBI was forced to admit that they had installed the illegal tap in March of 1962. Let's get back to the summer of 66. Willie Maffeo's life had been threatened several times in that period, and the police claimed that they had even taken him into protective custody. Willie had a record going back to 1941. In October of 42, Rudy Schiara, Willie Maffeo, and Angelo DeSaro were arrested for a B&E at the West Exchange Warehouse. The liquor theft had taken place in April of 41. Willie had several priors at that point, mostly for driving offenses, but also attempted larceny. Rudy Schiara enlisted in the Army on March 1st of 43, presumably to avoid a jail sentence. But Willie Maffeo continued on his many crime spree. With Rudy in the service, he found a partner in crime in Rudy's brother, Dante. They were both arrested in July of 43 for breaking into five freight cars in the Harris Ave freight yard. By August, Willie had broken out of jail and was on the lam. Two months later, he was recaptured and sentenced to three years. In the middle of 1964, William Feo was arrested for receiving $6,000 worth of stolen men's suits, but the charges would be dropped later that summer. 
Then in October, Willie's name was in the news again, this time because of his relationship with Joseph Schiavone, who was almost a murder victim himself. According to Schiavone, he noticed that his car motor was skipping, so he took it into the mechanic to get it checked out. When the mechanic popped the hood, he found an 8-inch stick of dynamite with a cap and two wires coming out of it. One wire was hooked up to a spark plug and the other to an alternator bracket to ground it. The mechanic told Schiavone to call the cops, but instead he placed a phone call to Willie Maffeo. A few days later, Schiavone's father-in-law showed up at the Coinomatic complaining about the bombing attempt. Patriarchus said he was sure nobody in Providence would have done it since he had banned the use of bombs except during labor disputes. I still don't understand that statement. He also speculated that since Schiavone was back on the street and Shylocking, it was probably one of the people he was trying to collect from. And it was his opinion that the culprit was either a sneak or a nut. He promised Giovanni's father-in-law that it wasn't anyone from Connecticut either. This was the same day that the hot car ring with John Barbieri and Joe Patriaca came to light. John Barbieri, Willie's brother-in-law, would be found dead just four months later. As for Schiavone, he was shot to death at point-blank range a decade later, but we'll get into that next season. The primary source of Willie Maffeo's income and misery was a club he ran on Atwell's Ave in Providence, Rhode Island, across from the Corner Kitchen restaurant that was located at 376 Atwell's. Every day, Willie would make his way to the restaurant at around 11 a.m. for coffee and a pastry. On the morning of July 13, 1966, as Willie, two companions, and the owner of the Corner Kitchen were enjoying their coffee and conversation, a lone man entered the restaurant and tapped Willie on the shoulder. The gunman ordered the other men to lay face down on the floor, and Willie was ordered outside at gunpoint. After being forced into a phone booth directly outside of the restaurant, he was shot once in the head, once in the shoulder, once in the chest, and once in the torso. Bullets were lodged in his brain, lungs, and spleen. The three witnesses all said they had never seen the killer before and couldn't provide a clear description. That afternoon, Willie's brother Thomas was hospitalized with hysteria after hearing about his brother's murder. Savino Marfeo suffered a heart attack after a scuffle with the police upon hearing of Willie's death. Savino would remain hospitalized until August 5th. Didn't Savino also have a heart attack when their brother Rudy was killed a couple of years later? Yes, I suspect it's another one of those stories like Larry Bione feigning illness during his last trial only to sit up in his hospital bed to tell the court to fuck off. <laughs> I would have loved to have been there to see that, like he was rising from the dead. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> After Willie's murder, the FBI set out on an internal CYA campaign. Decades later, during the congressional hearings into the corruption in the Boston FBI field office, the following information was released. Quote, the June 22, 1965 entry is a very long, detailed recitation of the plan to murder Willie Maffeo. Patriarca is clearly the principal involved in planning the murder. The killers are named as Barboza and Cassessa. Patriarca states that he would love to kill Maffeo himself. Unquote. The wiretap overheard the conversation between Patriarca, Camilio, and Barboza on June 22, 1965, in which Patriarca hired Barboza to kill Maffeo and recorded it in the log. However, the conversation was not picked up on the tape recorder through some inexplicable mechanical failure. Accordingly, the bureau supervisor in Boston, meaning Special Agent Keogh, who regularly reviewed the logs and tapes and noting that the tape had failed to record the conversation, did not incorporate the information in any memoranda, airtel, or bureau report, nor did the bureau supervisor disseminate the information to other agents. 
Ugh. Information about an attempt by someone other than Barboza to kill Mafea was disseminated to special agents Rico and Condon. We assume that that had to be the Scarpa mission. Quote, it should also be noted that Special Agent Rico did receive information on July 1st, 1965 from a live informant that Patriarca had hired Barboza to hit Willie Maffeo, end quote. The live informant was clearly Jimmy Flemmy, who was still laid up in the hospital recovering from the attempt on his life by Spike O'Toole. But nothing about this story that's in the congressional report makes sense. They're alleging that this conversation took place at the Coinomatic on June 22, 1965, but all we have is Keo's word for it. And if it didn't record, how would he know? He was only getting the recording sent to him in Boston. He wasn't sitting at the girls' school every day listening to it live. This is the same stunt Keo pulled with the Teddy Deegan murder. All they really had was Jimmy Flemmy's allegations, and there was no way they could put Jimmy on the stand. Don't forget that the wiretap mysteriously gets shut down with no explanation less than a month after this conversation allegedly took place, even though J. Edgar Hoover had approved it for another six months in May. Fed magic, baby. You might recall that back in 1964, Raymond allegedly paid off Joseph J.R. Russo for killing two men in Massachusetts. Keogh sat on his hands and did nothing to pursue what actually could have been a real case, unless that story was a lie also. We both maintain that Keogh was intel laundering and using information from live sources and inserting it into his reports as if it had come from the wiretap. Back to Providence in the summer of 66. Things were not quiet on Federal Hill. On Friday, July 29th, Rudy Maffeo's second floor apartment was set on fire. The following morning, Willie's nephew, Joseph, was shot in the leg while standing in his driveway. Then on August 7th at 12.40 a.m., an attempt was made on Rudy Maffeo's life by his brother-in-law, Joe Bakari, and Joe's nephews, Raymond and Louie. Four shots were fired into Rudy's apartment while he was sitting in his living room watching TV. The three Bakaris were arrested on attempted murder charges, and Joe Bakari was also charged with assaulting a police officer and illegal possession of a firearm after he attacked a cop during questioning at police headquarters. The following day, the men pleaded innocent to all of the charges. A little week over a week later, Rudy Sciarra was charged with illegal gambling. Then, on September 6th, Willie's nephews, Anthony and Savino Maffeo, were charged with assault and battery after beating Lenny DeRoy and Carl Santilli. Maybe those two boys shot Joseph. Well, maybe, but either way, the charges were eventually dropped because the witnesses refused to testify against them. The following month, on October 6th, Frank A. Millay Jr., the son of Frank A. Sr., and Emma Millay was found on the sidewalk outside of Rudy Maffeo's apartment with a bullet in his head. Rudy Maffeo's daughter, Charlene, called the police, saying she found him lying there. He was transferred to the hospital, but later succumbed to his wounds. After a brief investigation, the police determined that Frank had been shot in the apartment at close range about two inches above his right ear with a 38 caliber revolver. The killer was a 16-year-old whose name was never released. Complete tragedy. <clears throat> On November 16th, Angelo De Palma was shot to death in front of his mother's house. He was the fourth gangland murder of the year in Rhode Island. Like the others, he was killed with a 38 and shot multiple times. There were bullets lodged in his heart, liver, and a kidney. De Palma had a record going back to 1951 for charges ranging from gambling to possession of stolen goods. 
The police found a large sum of money in his home in addition to the 500 that was in his pocket. His widow mother, widowed mother, Leonita, said that they were going to use that money to move back to Italy along with Angelo's wife, Alice Souza, and their brother, Anthony. As for the other two murders earlier that year that you just referenced, both of, of those men were also killed with a 38. On February 22nd, Errol Bassett's body was discovered in Johnston, Rhode Island, after he had been missing for two weeks. There were multiple gunshot wounds to his face. On March 6th, Edgar Paul Casado was found shot to death in his car behind a dairy store at 266 Atwell's Ave on Federal Hill. No one was ever arrested, but the patterns make me think it was the same hitter which I guess puts an end to the Scarpa speculation. I can't see Scarpa running to Rhode Island on four different occasions to kill what appear to be pretty low-level guys. But I do want to know what Special Agent Charles Rapucci was doing with all the time he seems to have had on his hands, since he certainly wasn't investigating or solving cases. I guess he was just counting down the days to retirement and his new job at the Attorney General's office. No comment. To finish off 1966, Rudy Maffeo was finally in court after nine postponements on charges of running a red light. And Louis Maffeo was once again arrested on gambling charges. The charges were dropped against the Bakaris in the Rudy Maffeo apartment shooting that same month. The following year, Rudy Schiara would be charged with the murder of Willie Maffeo, only to be acquitted. The authorities would later put Angelo De Palma's brother, Anthony, on the stand to testify against Rudy Schiara and Raymond on a loan sharking charge. No one was ever convicted of Willie's slaying. Now, since there will be much more to come about him in future episodes, here's your chance to tell us more about Louis Minocchio. Baby Shanks Minocchio. <laughs> Baby Shanks. I always heard his name as Baby Shanks, and all of the old FBI reports and news articles referred to him as Shanks, not Shacks. Not the first nickname to be butchered, like Slim Cazonis has somehow become skinny. They're both still alive, and I wish they would straighten out their nickname issues. I can't help with that. Wikipedia still has it as Baby Shacks. I would try to change it, but I'm sure it would just get shot down by one of their crazy editors, so it's just going to have to stay that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the best part, though, is that the feds used the bogus nickname in their indictment against Louie back in 2011, so now it's official. <laughs> but how do you think he came by the nickname Baby Shanks? Well, I have two theories. One, a shank is the area between your knee and ankle. Louie is on the shorter side, so that would be a nice theory that, you know, a little baby leg, I don't know. The other is that the verb to shank someone or to stab someone, usually with a shiv, so, you know, a narrow knife that you would jab someone with. I always think of that as a prison thing, so maybe Louis earned his nickname when he was doing his prison stint in the 50s. Now, tell us the Shaq's theory. Well, this sounds apocryphal, but it was so funny we just had to share it. I put it up on Twitter, too. A newspaper article from 2012 claimed that Louis got the nickname Baby Shaq's because he had an older relative named Shaq's who was a bit of a player. <laughs> I uh, like shacking up with someone. I got it. I suspect Louie was a bit of a player, too, that whole Dr. Broad story and all, but I'm sticking with the Shanks thing. <laughs> Enough with the nickname war. Let's give Louie's mini bio. Luigi Minocchio was born in Providence, Rhode Island on June 23, 1927, to Maria Marino and Nicola Minocchio. His father was born in Italy and came to the U.S. in 1911 to join his father, Andrea, who had been living in the U.S. since 1898. Sometime in the early 1920s, I can't find the original story in the newspapers, Nicola was arrested for breaking and entering at night and larceny. 
He was sentenced to six years in prison, but it's unclear how much time he actually served. In the 1925 state census, Maria and their son Andrew are living with her parents, so I assume Nicola was in prison. However, nearly 32 years later, the arrest would come back to haunt him. In 1954, the Attorney General of Rhode Island tried to get Nicola deported, citing the newly enacted McCarran-Walter Act. But the governor swooped in to save the day and pardon Nicola Monacchio. The state Senate approved the pardon a week later. Nicola passed away on May 24, 1964. Nicola probably was still wrapped up in the life. There was an explosion in the apartment building that he and his wife were living in in 1952. It was said to be from an oil drum that was ignited, but I'm not a big believer in coincidences. Louis was an MP in the Army and received an honorable discharge in March of 1947. Louis had a record dating back to 1948 mostly motor vehicle violations, gambling, robbery, and weapons charges. In January of 48, he was arrested on assault and battery after a brawl in the Caruso Cafe. In December of 52, Louis was pinched along with Terence Biafore and Max and Sarah for a 4,000 payroll robbery at a jewelry plant that landed them in jail just 10 minutes after the heist. They were each given the minimum five-year sentence by the judge. Well, our listeners might remember that Biaforia and Sarah were related and both connected to, to Chicago organized crime. The Monacchios bought Max and Sarah's home when he left Providence and Louis's mom was living in it. After gaining his freedom, Louis was picked up with Willie Maffeo, Nikki Bianco, Jackie Nazarian, and others by the authorities to be photographed as suspicious persons. That's where those photos of all of them lined up in their overcoats come from. Now that makes sense. I knew it was a lineup of sorts. As we mentioned earlier, Louis was picked up on gambling charges in June of 65, along with the rest of the boys. Each of them pleaded out the following year. Then in January of 67, he pleaded guilty to a second set of gambling charges. Later that year, Louis was shot during a gun battle on Atwell's Ave on November 30th. Luckily for Louis, he survived. The bullet hit him in the neck, requiring hospitalization, but he was as good as new in a few days. Joseph Schiavone, who we discussed earlier, was picked up and charged with assault with intent to kill and illegal possession of a weapon. He would later be cleared of all charges in March of 68. We'll have lots more to come about the Maffeos, the Malays, Sciara, and Louis Minacchio. Next week, Nina and I are continuing on our Rhode Island journey. We'll be discussing the events leading up to the Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay murders, the actual hit on them, and the immediate aftermath. Thank you guys for listening as always. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.